Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you would like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. It is always an honor and a sobering thing to be before you preaching our Lord's good and challenging word. Many of you know that I am the farm director here, tasked with being God's helper in renewing this piece of land we have. So you would think that all of the agricultural metaphors for our walk with Christ would come easily to me as I am out working on the land every day um, and because I'm trained as a theologian. But I must admit that sometimes I'm so wrapped up in the technicalities of farming, the spreadsheets and the planning and the budgeting, that it takes others in our community to help me see the spiritual lessons in the work that we are doing here at New Garden Park. And I was reminded of this this week. During weekdays, Julia McIntyre and I are blessed with the company of the New Wineskins, a missionary network staff during lunchtime, as we all share an office. Um, and as we were all eating in the greenhouse last week, enjoying the really fantastic weather, um, Jenny told me a story, Jenny Noyes, who many of you know. In her work, she has been counseling a church that has basically imploded due to some relational and organizational um, longstanding problems. They have essentially had to take the church Um, down to the studs, take it apart, and start from scratch. A deeply, deeply painful task for all of them. And Jenny had been praying for a word of encouragement um, for them and told me that she found it when she was listening to me describe to Genevieve Wall why we had ripped up our beautiful garden and created chaotic piles of upended soil, which many of you have probably seen as you walk through the garden or the greenhouse. And Jenny pondered in her heart the ways that just like we have to rebuild our garden beds because of drainage and soil fertility issues and destroy in order to remake um, and for a deeper and more long-lasting soil health, so God has to sometimes destroy what we build in order to help us rebuild it in greater holiness. She told the church that she's been counseling about our garden beds and the metaphor of God's merciful rebuilding to comfort them that God was at work in their process to his glory. In spirit-filled timing, I think this metaphor also helps us understand today's lectionary passage, Isaiah 6, about God's righteous destruction of everything Israel had built in the promised land for the sake of Israel's long-term holiness. As we sit together in his holy word today, keep Jenny's lesson in mind. God does not destroy needlessly, but rather purposefully, as a good creator for the long-term flourishing of his creation. So let's dive in and learn from the prophet Isaiah this morning. But first, let us pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I have stared at this painting... Um, of Isaiah 6 for hours and hours, and I wish I could say it's because I'm very pious and have been preparing for hours and hours for this sermon, but really it's because this painting hung in the main lecture room of my seminary at Duke, where we had the large majority of our classes, and I would often find my attention wandering about hour two, Um, and I would daydream and gaze at this painting, which was the only decoration in the very gray room, uh, with no windows, and the painting is of four great seraphim, in the temple of God, with the skirts of God's robe wrapped around the majestic columns. It is a painting of Isaiah 6. I loved the mountains in the distance that you can see transforming into clouds, and the sea traveling up the mountains as a river. 
I loved the moon over the horizon framing the altar and the four seraphim with their majestic wings full of beauty and splendor. It took me a long time to even notice little naked Isaiah, uh, which I think is the artist's intention. You are supposed to be so overwhelmed by the glory of God that Isaiah seems tiny and insignificant in comparison. Can you all spot him? It's like a Where's Waldo. Um, I want you to gaze on this painting as I read part of the first part of Isaiah 6. This translation uh, of Isaiah 6 is a brand new one by Robert Alter, a famous Hebrew scholar who just released his long-awaited translation of the whole Old Testament, which he did single-handedly, which is a very big deal for Bible nerds. I bought it for Judson for Christmas. <laughs> Listen to his beautiful rendering of this passage as you ponder this painting. In the year of the death of King Uzziah, I saw the master seated on high, on a high and lofty throne, and the skirts of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were stationed over him, six wings for each one. With two it would cover its face, and with two it would cover its feet, and with two it would hover. And each called out to each and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The fullness of all the earth is his glory. And the pillars of the threshold swayed from the voice calling out, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am undone. For I am a man of impure lips, and in a people of impure lips do I dwell. My eyes have seen the King Lord of armies. And one of the seraphim flew down to me, in his hand a glowing coal and tongs that he had taken from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Look, this has touched your lips, and your crime is gone. Your offense shall be atoned. And I heard the voice of the master saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of armies. The fullness of all the earth is his dwelling, is his glory and his dwelling. What words stuck out to you as I read this? What images in the painting? What images in your mind? Did you get a small taste of God's glory? Did you feel a little bit of Isaiah's awe and his fear? Or did this sound foreign to your ear and look foreign to your eye? But the chapter is not over yet. So Isaiah stands before his master and his maker, ready for the task, ready to be sent. But what will Yahweh send him to do? What has he volunteered himself for? For the next part of the chapter, we will need a new image. So this is a photo that I took uh, when I was working on a film about Sicilian religious festivals, Catholic festivals in Italy several years ago. We were filming the Festival of St. Joseph in a small mountain town that had been relocated after a horrific earthquake had destroyed the entire village in the 60s. The ruins are still there, though, right next to the current town, a reminder of what once was. As I read about God's request to Isaiah, my memories of this village came to mind. So let's read the second half of the chapter together with this image as our visual focal point. And the master said, go and say to this people, indeed you must hear, but you will not understand. 
Indeed, you must see, but you will not know. Make the heart of this people obtuse and block its ears and seal its eyes, lest it see with its eyes and with its ears hear and its heart understand and it turn back and be healed. And I said, Till when, O master? And he said, Till the towns are laid waste with no dwellers and homes with no man, and the land is laid waste, a desolation. And the Lord shall drive man far away, and abandonment grow in the midst of the land. Till the towns are laid waste with no dwellers. And homes with no man. And the land is laid waste, a desolation. And the Lord shall drive man far away, and abandonment grow in the midst of the land. Imagine you are little Isaiah in the painting. You have just beheld the full, awesome majesty of the Lord. Your lips have been cleansed by his burning fire, and you are ready to deliver his words to your people. You're in the midst of the holy of holies. And what does God ask you to do? He asks you to tell your people, your family, your neighbors, and friends, that the promised land they have inhabited, you will all be exiled from. Your homes will fall into ruin. The Assyrian invaders, the foreign conquerors who threaten your nation, will come and kill and plunder and force your people away from their homes and into captivity. And to make all this worse, Isaiah must tell them that the Lord will harden their hearts, the hearts of all Israelites, just as he hardened the hearts of Pharaoh before the plagues, so the nation cannot repent. The fate of Israel is sealed. Goodness, what a task to be given as a prophet. But why? Why would God do such a thing, we modern readers ask? We are so unfamiliar with the narratives of the Old Testament. We find this arbitrary and cruel. Why would God lead his people into the promised land only to let them get plundered by the empire of the day? Why would God ordain such a thing? Folks read passages like this out of context and wrongly state that the God of the Old Testament is fickle and mean-spirited. No, says says Isaiah, no. The Lord's action is just and fitting. It is the best course of action for his people. For Isaiah knows the whole story. He knows it like the back of his hand. He knows that his people have failed their part of the covenant. God brought them into the promised land on the condition that they must live there as his holy people living in righteousness and being a beacon on a hill to the whole world. Isaiah knows Torah, the law that was delivered through Moses to the people, where God's command is clear. In Leviticus, it says that Moses told them before they settled in the promised land that they must live on the land in such a way that everyone in the community is cared for, including the foreigners, widows, and orphans. They must tend to the land itself, giving it rest and care. Debts must be forgiven. The people must keep Sabbath and not worship idols. They must be a people that trust in God's daily provision and not hoard. The Lord must be their all in all. In Leviticus, it says that God promised them from the outset. 
If you follow my statutes, can I have a slide here? If you follow my statutes and keep my commandments and observe them faithfully, I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And I will grant peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and no one shall make you afraid, and no sword shall go through your land. This is God's promise to them if they obey his commandments. But if they ignore God, the future is far different. But if you will not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and abhor my ordinances so that you will not observe all my commandments and you break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will bring terror on you, consumption and fever that waste the eyes and cause life to pine away. You shall sow your seed in vain for your enemy shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down by your enemies. Your foes shall rule over you, and you I will scatter among the nations. And I will unsheathe the sword against you. Your land will be a desolation, and your cities a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath years as long as it lies desolate, while you are in the land of your enemies. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath years. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have the rest it did not have on your Sabbath when you were living on it. So this is the word that they were, they were given through Moses as they came into the promised land. The Lord, their holy landlord, is crystal clear about the terms of the lease of the promised land. He will care for them and feed them and allow them to live in this land of milk and honey for no rental fee and no grocery bill as long as they uphold their end of the lease, their end of the holy covenant. To make sure that they worship him steadfastly, they share the fruit of the land with righteousness, and they care for the land they are given. Parents, this will resonate with you. You likely do not charge your teenagers rent. You give them food for free. You clothe them and save for their inordinately expensive college. And you have a few simple requests in exchange, that they don't drink and drive, they don't watch pornography. They speak to you with love and care. They don't trash their bedrooms. They treat their siblings with love and so on. How does this go? How does this go with Israel? Abysmally. It goes abysmally with Israel. When Isaiah says, Woe to me, for I am undone, for I am a man of impure lips, and in a people of impure lips do I dwell, he is standing in for all of Israel. He's not only thinking of his own individualized sins. He is thinking about his role in all of Israel's failure. When he sees the Lord, he is struck by the full contrast of God's perfect glory and, and all of God's heavenly host. Sorry, <laughs> that sentence didn't make sense. <laughs> when he sees the Lord, he is struck by the full contrast of God's perfect glory and Israel's failure to live into this glory. He's beholding the heavenly wonders and all of God's heavenly army, which we refer to in our liturgies and scripture as heavenly host or company of heaven. God's glory is unexpected to Isaiah because who could possibly expect the full weight of his glory? Who could expect, who could comprehend how powerful the Lord and all his host are? Imagine you're Isaiah and you behold God and all his angels and their perfection and power and splendor. And then you think of how far humanity falls short in comparison. 
how Israel has forgotten its true champion, Yahweh, the ruler of the universe, and instead has tried to do everything in their own power. As Brevard Child says, Isaiah is awestruck not because he is only immortal before the infinite, but because he is a sinful human being sharing the impurity of an entire nation. Modern Christians get caught up with individualized sin and, and individualized, individualized salvation in ways that is not faithful to a biblical worldview. We are trained to think of our sin only as the acts we do as individuals. So when I kneel to do confession weekly, too often, I am only thinking about the sins that I commit in my own little realm. The time that I snapped at my husband, or my own pride about something that happened at work. Frankly, I usually end up feeling not too bad about myself, because I can't think of that many overt sins. So I piously cross myself and think, not bad this week, Lena. <laughs> so admit it, I mean, I think many of us have been there. But... But my worldview was about sin was radically changed when I thought, started thinking about sin as also participation in collective sin. Because when, this, when Scripture talks about sin and repentance, it is often talking about the sins of a whole community. God's, God holds every Israelite accountable for the sins of Israel. Granted, some he holds more accountable, like the rich and powerful who make the decisions, but nobody gets off the hook. The nation is holy together or it is unholy together. It remains on the land together or it is exiled together. Do we think like this about the sins of our nation? Do we think of it like this about the sins of our society or even the sins of our church body? When I kneel in repentance, do I think about my role in the children who die in Yemen from American-made weapons? Do I think about my role in the babies aborted in America? Do I think about my role in the mass extinction of God's creatures that is sweeping the planet? Do I think about my role in the immigrants being held in detention centers? Do I think about my role in the 25% of folks in Greensboro who go food insecure and hungry? Do I think about my role in the huge amount of idolatry and sexual immorality and consumerism in American culture? Do I? No, I don't too often. Because I lie to myself. The story I tell myself is that I have nothing to do with these things. They are bigger than me, and I have no control over them. But God holds me accountable for these things. He holds me accountable for the suffering and poverty of my neighbors. He holds you accountable for the suffering and poverty of the land. He holds Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi and Pope Francis and Archbishop Foley and Taylor Swift and LeBron James accountable for the state of our world. It would be an interesting thing to ask these famous folks, or even to ask each other in this congregation, if we think of ourselves as responsible for the sins of the world. I think if we did, a lot of fingers would start pointing away from ourselves towards others who are more culpable, with the exception of probably Pope Francis and Archbishop Foley, because they're very holy men. But the rest of us would all likely find convenient ways to justify ourselves. I only pollute and consume this tiny amount, so how can I be held responsible for the fact that ecosystems are collapsing across the planet? I only have enough money to feed my family, so how can I be held responsible for the poverty of someone else in Greensboro or someone else in Southeast Asia? It's easier to point the fingers to the powers that be than it is to look in the mirror. 
but all of these problems that plague our society, so similar to the ones that plagued Isaiah's society. Poverty, inequality, wealth accumulation, land abuse, idolatry. They aren't committed by a single guilty individual. They are committed by a group of people who all do their part to contribute to the greater sin. We all work together for ill, as it were, and Satan laughs. We all happily participate in the systems that cause these problems because they benefit us in some way. We like the wealth. We like the stuff. We like our privacy. We like looking out for number one. It all seems insignificant until you multiply that selfishness by seven billion people. Then you have a catastrophe. Isaiah is filled with woe because when he looks into the glory of Yahweh and knows that he is responsible, as every Israelite is, for the ways they have forgotten God's commands. To give you some context, in chapter 5, Isaiah cries out to his people, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you alone live in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate and the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Woe to you who rise early in the morning to run after the drinks who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquet, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth, into it will descend their nobles and masses, with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled, and the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich." or my version in modern terms, the prophet Isaiah says to us, shame on you who take all the land for luxury estates and provide no affordable housing or nourishing food for the poor, and who use all of the earth's resources and ruin the land. Shame on you who party in luxury and forget what God has done for you. Therefore, you are exiled because you are idiots. Hell has opened up its mouth and swallowed all the pampered folks down its throat. Humanity is being humbled by the mightiness of God, and the Lord of the universe will hover over the whole world in justice and holiness, and the vacant homes of the rich will be overrun by farm animals. I know this is a lot of scripture this morning, more than normal, but I felt strongly that you had to hear this passage in context and hear God's word directly. Isaiah chapter 5 explains why Isaiah has to tell his people that they will be exiled in Isaiah chapter 6. Not because God is petty, but because God is righteous. The only way his people will learn is to feel the full effects of their sin. Just as a parent sometimes has to let their child fail 
and suffer the consequences of their poor decisions. God has to let his people realize what life is like in exile from the promised land. He chooses to let the nation be deconstructed and exiled. He chooses to let Israel, which which he calls his beloved vine, be dug up from the land that he planted it in. God chooses this fate for Israel. But wait, why does God bother telling Isaiah any of this? Why does he not just let him suffer with the rest of the people and not say a word? Because we know the people were duly warned by Moses. They can go back and read Leviticus. They should know what's happening. Oh, we're being exiled because we failed to keep our part of the covenant. Stands to reason. But why does God cleanse Isaiah of his sin and send this bleak message? Well, what does the seraphim say to Isaiah? Your crime is gone. Your offense shall be atoned. What does that sentence remind you of? What does it point towards? That's what happens for us on the cross, is it not? This merciful forgiveness of Isaiah, who stands in for all his people, both harkens back to the atoning sacrifices on the altar in Torah and forward to the atoning sacrifice of God himself on the cross of Jesus. We see through Christ's sacrifice the ways that all this sin that humanity brings upon itself is ultimately forgiven by God. I hope this passage helps you see the forgiveness of the cross even more fully. That Jesus didn't just die for the forgiveness of your personal individualized sins. 1 John 2.2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for the sins committed by the whole human race, combating the evil one and his armies. All the mega conglomerate sins, the ways all humans have failed to live on this planet in the way that they should. He died for all poverty, for all misery, for all addiction, for all destruction of life. He died for all war, for all hatred, for all racism. He died for all abuse, for all hunger, for all sorrow. He died for you and the ways that you contribute to these things. He died for me and the way that I contribute to these things. The Lord tells Isaiah this message because it is not all bad news, because there is hope. I didn't finish reading the chapter. There is one more verse. Can I get the slide? The last lines of God God's instructions to Isaiah are, And yet a tenth shall be in the land and turn back, and it shall be ravaged like a terebinth and an oak, which though felled have a stump within them. The holy seed is its stump. God is saying that even in exile, he will not abandon his covenant with the people. A small group will return, a remnant, to the promised land to start over again. And they will see the desolation of their land. But there, from a ruined stump of their land, a new shoot of life will be growing, like the orange tree that I photographed in that ruined village, growing up of its own accord, a sign of life and renewal. This is the resurrection image of this passage. The holy seed is its stump. I believe this is a foreshadowing of Jesus 
just like the hope for Israel is in this seemingly dead stump. The hope for all humanity is in Jesus' dead body on the cross, which will bring new life to all who follow him into his resurrection. In a few short months, around Easter time, we will see green life springing up from the garden where there are now just piles of dirt. It will be a reminder to us of this new life that Jesus is bringing to us all amidst what often seems like chaotic destruction. We will spend the coming season of Lent pondering our individual, individual and collective sins. But then we'll be greeted by Easter and Christ's resurrection of all things and his bringing of new creation. I want to leave you with a sweet little story, a metaphor for hope amidst our sin. Also, I feel like I owe it to you because I've given three very intense sermons in a row. I'm going to make a request for my next sermon to be on a happy, lighthearted passage. <laughs> When we were filming the festival of San Giuseppe of St. Joseph in Sicily, in the new rebuilt town, we went to find a, Roman, a woman named Rosalia, who was famous for her intricate pastries she made for the annual celebrations of the city's patron saint. She, survived, um, sorry, uh, she and her husband were married before the earthquake, and though they survived, they watched many of their neighbors and families be killed. They had to build everything again from scratch in the new town. Yet instead of giving in to despair or bitterness, Rosalia said the experience filled her with gratitude for God, for his care for them, and his help in the renewing of their community. She expressed her gratitude to the Lord each year by spending months in the spring making these amazingly intricate fig cookies in all different forms and shapes that represent Christ's renewal the cross, the tree of life, the peacock, which is an Italian symbol for the renewal of the church, the holy family, the Jesus fish, and many more. She had hundreds of these things all across her house in preparation for the festival. The figs that she used are from fig trees that the town replanted after the earthquake. The pastries go on an altar each feast day, a table laden with food, the tradition is that the three poorest members of the community ceremonially feast at the table before everyone else, representing the triune God. Rosalia and her husband say that in their heart, they are still in the old city, which they can see from their window. But their faith and their feasting helps keep a continuity to their lives and community and reminds them of their ultimate purpose in life, to follow God obediently. May Rosalia and her husband be a reminder to us to be repentant and follow Christ's path of renewing holiness, just as Isaiah reminds us, come what may. In Christ's name, amen.